Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am Joe, and with me to complete the series is Liam. Hello, Liam. Is it a series of its two parts? A duology. <laughs> this is just a shitty sequel. Yeah, it's ever as good as the original. A duology. There you go. Now, oh, lower your expectations, folks. Hunger has set in. I'm actually, I skipped lunch. Now, if you are listening to this, where we left off last week is that uh, the U.S. is getting ready to invade Mexico. If you're Liam, we left off about five minutes ago. <laughs> I've been trapped into this room for yeah. two hours. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> uh, so when we left you last week, Pancho Villa and his boys raided across the U.S.-Mexico border directly into the path of a shoeless man manning a machine gun, achieving virtually nothing. And nearly melting the barrel. I almost killed so many of you, I destroyed my gun. It, they achieved virtually nothing but pissing off the U.S. government that had already showed itself very comfortable with invading Mexico from time to time. Now, commander of the Southern Department, which is, I guess is what it was called back then, General Frederick Frunston, telephoned the War Department the day after the VIA raid, saying, quote, I urgently recommend that American troops be given authority to pursue into Mexican territory, hostile Mexican bandits who raid American territory. So long as the border is a shelter for them, they will continue to harass our ranches and towns to our chagrin. I guess he's not one for, uh, for rough language. Now... Frunston is a weird guy uh, who, like a lot of American generals of the day, were something of like they, their career was something of a Forrest Gump journey across the world in the age of Amer- Amer- early American imperialism. This uh, brought him to the Philippines, where he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And before that, he fought in Cuba with Cuban revolutionaries against the Spanish. Also, at one point in 1906, uh, during the 1906 earthquake, he was in command of a, of a base called the Presidium in California. And he had declared martial law, despite the fact he was not allowed to do that. Um, yeah. Oh, sick. <laughs> During this time in martial law, he ordered looters to be shot on sight, which, which ended oh, okay. with armed soldiers <laughs> and civilians wildly opening fire on numerous Indian, uh, innocent bystanders and also maybe some looters. Uh, yeah, he's kind of a bastard. <laughs> that's that, that's that's superb. I've. Gentlemen, I've come up with a way to stop disorder in the wake of the earthquake. We will simply do the purge. (laughs) So Frunston is a real bastard. Uh, He figured as commander of the Southern Department and the one who responded to the mess, he would be given command of any invasion of Mexico, which the war secretary, which is what the Department of Defense was called back then, and the president had already kind of sort of signed up for. But he wasn't. To Frunston's actual oh. surprise, it was John Blackjack Pershing uh, who would be given command. 
this motherfucker. Uh, which, of course, he'd be mostly known for to be the future commander of the American Expeditionary Force in a World War One, uh, and he was going to be the one given command to pursue via into Mexico. Also, uh, I was never so. I'm I'm 100 guilty here. I actually never knew where his name ta- his, his his nickname came from before. Or were you aware of where his nickname came from before? Nope. Okay. Nope. So he was given that nickname because at one point he commanded an all black cavalry unit out west. That was it. That was that was it. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so they called him. It I wasn't blackjack. It was blackjack. <laughs> like oh, like Jack, okay. who was who works with black people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Suddenly, I'm not comfortable ever calling him by his nickname ever again. So, John Pershing. (laughs) John Pershing. General Pershing, yes. Uh, Now, Frunston would remain in command of the Southern Department while Pershing, who doesn't have a nickname, would be in charge of the Expeditionary Force, meaning he was technically his subordinate. But Frunston wanted to go do war stuff with his friends. And this meant that he fucking hated Pershing and was a conniving dickhead to him the entire time. (laughs) <laughs> so we know now that the two commanders of the expeditionary force are something of catty bitches to one another let's talk about the army that they were going to use for this expedition now like we pointed out the last episode the majority of the soldiers being massed at the border were national guardsmen uh much like during if you remember all the way back during our philippine war series the u.s still did not have much of a standing regular army uh and you know the like we talked about the last episode early american history was kind of like really hated a large standing military, something we have totally discarded. Yeah. um, uh, Yeah. And like the idea was that the U S army would be the federalized military while the real power lay in the militias or the national guard, which are modern militias. Now, not fucking your country uncle with an AR instead the regular army was kept very small, only big enough really to, really to be deployed to crush native people when, whenever any of them dared to deserve to want equal rights. Um, like, for instance, when the government deployed um, 14,000 federal troops south, it accounted for almost the entire army. So hmm. when something like this happened, they would have to call up huge numbers of National Guard. Uh, by the end of the expedition, every single state other than Nevada, weirdly enough, <laughs> would send the National Guard south. And that doesn't even have one yet. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Today, the National Guard soldiers go through the exact same training as regular soldiers do. Like when you go to basic training, there'll be people in your class who are National Guardsmen. When you go, like when I went to tank school, a large portion of my class is National Guardsmen. There's really no functional mm-hmm. difference. Though, of course, regular army soldiers will bitch and complain about they're just so much better, and they're not. Um, Back then, it was much, much different. Guardsmen would be trained in their home state by their own trainers. Hypothetically, basic training was the same. And it really was in most places, as training in the army back then was mostly just like how to march with a little bit of marksmanship thrown in. Uh, Also, many states found that the amount of men they had in paper was not actually accurate for the amount of men that were in the National Guard. For example, (laughs) uh, in New York, uh, guardsmen wouldn't have to take a physical exam to determine if they were fit for service until they were called up. That meant, you know, oh, yeah, uh, the New York National Guard has 5,000 people in it. Oh, fuck, it's actually 20. That meant that a lot of these dudes 
<laughs> all <laughs> showed up and able to run a lap around the building or missing fingers or whatever. And I'm not pulling this out of my ass. This is from the actual National Guard historian website. Quote, across the nation, the sheer number of soldiers who had had to be examined created a problem. Equally troublesome, the number of prospective soldiers had failed rudimentary physical, uh, uh, failed a rudimentary physical were staggering. The reasons were varied, included venereal disease, defective vision, hernias, bad teeth, obesity, overall poor physique, underweight or overweight, amputations or deformities. <laughs> like, you could just like go That's sign tough, up man. like a list. Of, like, yeah, I'm totally in the guard. Uh, you don't have to do anything, though. I'm not even going to make you do a physical. I see you're missing an arm. That won't become a problem until later. It's weight savings, man. Don't shame me. In some places, the guard had rejected a full quarter of the people they actually had on their rolls. Again, this is from the National (laughs) Guard website. (laughs) Quote, when the final mobilization records were tallied, the state that had the lowest rate of rejections was Colorado with 10%, while Ohio topped the list with 25. See? Fuck you, Ohio. (laughs) Not a real state. Arkansas similar rejection of 870 out of 2000 that were examined at the Little Rock mobilization site proved that Ohio was not alone in their shortcomings. For the 14 Midwest states that made up the Army's central department, the average number of rejections was over 15%. The New York Adjutant General, General John O'Reilly, would later point out that the basic fallacy in the system, physical exams should take place before an enlistee joins the unit, not while getting ready to deploy. No (laughs) shit. (laughs) Thanks, dude. This is like not bud. having a like a job interview until you go to your first day at the jail. Like, what do you mean you're not a doctor? You said you were a doctor. Well, sure, I lied. I lied. You said you're an engineer. Well, well, I mean, I'm sure I'm still good enough to build a condo in Miami. Oh, no. <laughs> now, when they finally did get mustered and sent off to camps to catch up on trading, it was further discovered that the War Department did not plan ahead at all. If you were going to pick like three things. For these guardsmen to go train, what do you think they would need? Guns. Yes. What well, What would be number two? Ammo. Yes. What about number three? What if I told Ooh. you I didn't have any of those? <laughs> oh, that's not very good. There was a- this whole this whole company is not very good at their jobs. <laughs> there wasn't enough guns, water, f- boots, food, or even basic uniforms for the camps at first. Many. Lord, man. Many units only trained by marching around with sticks instead of guns before being sent south, hypothetically, to war. This is my rifle. This is my (laughs) stick. Go cut a switch so you can pretend to be a soldier. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why, despite there being around 140,000 guardsmen being called up, only a handful of regiments would actually be sent over the border into Mexico. With the main force... Being this like the the federalized army, being somewhat better trained and organized. Um, now, if yeah, if you Somewhat. look, I feel like someone's doing a lot of work yeah. there. Uh, they at least had boots on them, I guess. Uh, now, and the National okay. Guard historian would argue that no National Guard units crossed the border into Mexico. There is enough evidence to prove that, that is not entirely correct. Um, but the vast, like, and it wasn't the guard that came up with the idea that they're not going to go over the border. Like the commander's like, holy shit, we can't use these guys. Um, While the guard tripped of their own dick to mobilize a massive amount of people quicker than anyone had in 1916 and had any business of doing in the U S government. The U S also managed to pull off a lot of firsts 
uh, that would end up being something of a practical practice for the upcoming world war that they would find themselves in. This included using planes and truck convoys for the first time. Now remember, 1916. Planes have been around for like 15 years. <laughs> Pretty fucking new. America. Granted, it was 1916, so these planes and trucks sucked and broke down and fell out of the sky with alarming regularity. America. <laughs> now, originally, one surprise party to this exposition was the Mexican government itself, led by Carranza. Well, you know, I can agree. You know, we can all probably agree that this is that this was an invasion of Mexico at large, but it was done so with, at least at first, the consent of the Mexican government. And this is mostly because it was a way to avoid an all-out war with the U.S. Carranza originally refused to allow U.S. soldiers across the border, pointing out that he too was at war with Villa and he would use his own military to track him down and bring him to justice. The U.S. refused this for two reasons. One, they did not trust Carranza and figured that he would take the side to protect Villa, despite the fact that the U.S. is still supporting the government of Mexico, and also because of optics, you know? News of a raid on Columbus mm-hmm. had spread rapidly across the U.S. And to be fair, a lot of the reporting done on the raid was blown wildly out of proportion to make it look 100 times worse than it actually was. Uh, you know, some good old yellow journalism. While it wasn't the first raid of the border into the U.S., it was certainly the largest. And the American people and government wanted revenge. And there is a whole lot less flair than getting that kind of allied government to do it for you. It's, it, it is virtually the same reason why after 9-11, the Taliban government in Afghanistan is like, yeah, we'll give you Osama bin Laden. Just like, you have to recognize us as the government. And we were like, no. No, no yeah. fuck that. <laughs> we're going to wage a pointless war instead, god I mean, damn you. We gotta pay you do not tanks. have to hand it to the Taliban. However, they gave us a way out. <laughs> now, you could also theorize that there was no functional way the Taliban could deliver Osama bin Laden to us, which, sure, fine. But the offer was on the table. Um, and that, that's the thing is, like, you want to look like you're doing something good, right? You want to, like, no, look, I like we as the government are doing something to protect you. Not like, yeah, they're going to go catch him for us. We'll be, we'll be good. It's stupid. Thanks, the Taliban. (laughs) Our good friends, the Taliban. (laughs) Friends of the pod, the Taliban. (laughs) Cut that out. (laughs) So after a week of mild threats, Carranza caved, allowing U.S. forces into Mexico as long as they did not leave the state of Chihuahua. Though Carranza did manage to get one final fuck you before the operation began, refusing to allow the U.S. access to the Mexican railways for resupply. This was done for no reason other than, you know, I hate you. <laughs> like, functionally, it did not matter. Uh, this forced the U.S. to use horses and the aforementioned shitty Dodge pickup trucks. Um, I assume their quality has improved somewhat. I don't know. I'm not a truck guy. <laughs> uh, another way the Mexican people, government, and rebels all work together to fuck with U.S. soldiers would be to constantly cut telegraph lines they advance, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> Um, so on March 15th, 1916, the U S army crossed the border into Mexico in three separate columns and quickly learned that holy shit was the U S military not ready to pull off something quite like this. Via had a hell of a lot of time to get a head start and had no plans to sit and fight the entire bite of the U S military with his handful of stolen guns that he had gotten a couple weeks ago. Even if it was held together with horses, old-timey trucks, and dudes who trained with tree branches, 
it was still a much better fighting force than anything Villa could muster. Instead, he got the fuck out of the way, forcing the U.S. to go on one hell of a hike and immediately running out of their own supply lines. Now, this is something that's like common uh, um, with a lot of invading forces, uh, is that most commanding generals are combat soldiers once upon a time. Like they come from cavalry or infantry or tanks or whatever. Like none of these guys are logistics generals. So they're like, no, we, we're going to deploy these soldiers to go fight. And meanwhile, all the people who are desperately trying to bring you food and ammo can't keep up with you. Like it's like a tale as old as the, like Napoleon did it. Fucking Hitler did it. Everybody does it eventually. You know who did do it? Uh, nah, nah, General Sherman, man. If we don't have supply lines, they don't have that supply lines. one way lines, to do maybe. it, yeah. Um, within a short amount of time, Pershing was over 400 miles into Mexico, which doesn't seem like it's that long. But remember, it's 1916, and most of these guys have no idea what they're doing. It was also around this time that he learned, unfortunately, that the U.S. military in its totality did not have enough trucks or pack animals to supply the expedition. This forced the Secretary of War to pull nearly a half a million dollars out of somewhere, nobody's entirely sure where, to buy literally any truck or horse he could find. Uh, yeah. That's, now, that's like $12 million in today dollars, which like, if the, if the military today was attempting to spend that much money, they would get nothing for it because it's only $12 million. But back then, it was a lot of fucking money for the Secretary of War to be throwing around. One half of one yeah, exactly. and four. Through the requisition process, we got you this magazine spring. Now, on the flip side, the acquisition of these pack animals and trucks did not go great. Because, say, if you happen to have a whole bunch of busted-ass trucks that barely ran, uh, half-dead pack animals, and suddenly the government's like, we will pay you literally any amount of money if you give us your trucks. What are you going to do with those trucks? You're gonna, you're Pretty going sore. to pawn them off on the government, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Oh yeah, like they could dictate the prices for their worst pack animals and trucks, and just make the government pay them obscene amounts of money. And admittedly, the government was not in a place to refuse. It's it's not like trucks were everywhere in 1916. Like there's only so many. Right. So when they finally got the trucks they needed so their soldiers could eat and shoot their guns, maybe they realized that all the roads marked on their map either simply did not exist or were completely worthless when it rained. Um, furthermore, a lot of these trucks just could not handle rough terrain uh, and they broke down constantly when they had to r- drive off of what we would consider a road. Uh, now, this breakdown forced engineers to build roads for the army to march on, slowing the entire process down. Or even funnier, sometimes that the the trucks were so incredibly unreliable, they had to hook them up to pack animals and then pull them. Like this Dodge truck has two. Yeah, this Dodge power. truck has literally two horsepower. Way to go, team! <laughs> this, it's the first Ram. This is called efficiency. <laughs> yeah. I believe that's how Dodge Rams are still marketed. Um, Pershing also found the vaunted planes that were going to act as his recon element were pretty much suicidally useless. Um, now, the bi- they were using biplanes, and these are early American biplanes. Now, there there would be sure. a lot of uh, evolution and flight technology as World War I wore on because people learned you could drop bombs from them and shit. We're not using those planes. Those aren't the planes we're using. Plus, we have the Battle of Blair Mountain to, 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 to right. test out uh, bombing people. Uh, and like any, at this point, these are unarmed planes, uh, but they also were planes that could barely fly. 
Um, their biplanes made out of mostly canvas and wood, and they couldn't do their job because they didn't have enough power to overcome the wi- the winds that came off of uh, the mountains of northern Chihuahua. So, like a lot of these guys are trying to get over the mountains and then crashing and dying, uh, or like uh, just having to turn around, which is kind of hilarious. Like, no, we got these new revolutionary technologies for it's called a plane. It's gonna be able to recon Pancho Villa, and he's not gonna be able to do anything about it. Okay. Okay. Uh, never mind. You can't use any of the planes. Uh, we were. We were. Um, we we hit a supplies uh, a surprise snag. This being a terrain feature that's been here for millions of years. It's crazy <laughs> how that works out. All of these things aside, the U.S. assumed they'd still be able to find Via. After all, not only had he, re- had he been raiding across the border for supplies as his power dwindled, he had been raiding Mexican towns and villages, turning some amount of the population against him. So, when American forces rolled into these villages, assuming that the townspeople would help them, they were shocked to find out that they were very unpopular, and they would not tell them shit. Now, if if you're listening... Those fuckers. (laughs) Yeah, like, of course this is what fucking happened. It's the exact same reason that, like, all of those, uh, the, the previous revolutionary groups worked with Carranza, because they hated Huerta, not because they liked each other. These villagers probably do hate Via, but they also hate Americans way more who invaded their country. Again, the theory of fuck that guy. Now we are that guy. That's all it is. Look at like any popular resistance movement as soon as like the unifying enemy leaves. Uh, you know, uh, Afghanistan, either with the Soviets or the the British, the Soviets or us in a few years, like it, the what we consider a, a unifier is going to crumble and start fighting each other because they don't have anything to unify around anymore. So now we're helping unify Mexico by making everybody hate us. <laughs> but after two weeks of running around in circles, not finding shit, and only getting the occasional skirmish with Via's forces, elements of the Seventh Cavalry finally ran into a large force of Via's men at the town of Guerrero. Unfortunately for the men of the 7th, this is not the set piece battle they had hoped for. Because that's like one of the things that they continually, like, is, is, the, is, is the through line for this entire expedition. At no point does Via, like, this is where we're going we're gonna to sit and defend and fight these guys. He's a raider. Why, the, why would he exactly? do that? And that's like the thing that, like, Pershing's like, well, we'll corner him eventually and he'll have to fight us. Like, no, the fuck he won't. No, he doesn't. He'll die he'll running. Just go home. <laughs> <laughs> it's a much better option to die running. Now, the men had just undergone a 55-mile march to the Sierra Madre Mountains in just 17 hours. Now, admittedly, this is on horseback, but that does mean that their horses are fucking exhausted. They might not be, but they're a cavalry unit, which is more important here. And just before that, they had marched 400 miles in 14 days. So they're not exactly... Uh, Fuck that. Yes, exactly. I've not, like, I, I have ridden a horse on, like I think, two occasions. Incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, I can't imagine riding that for 400 fucking miles. Um, these guys had burned through much of their supplies of food and water in order to get to the town where they heard Via's men were held up. When they finally got there and found it to be well defended and surrounded by a thick wall that would stop gunfire. It also didn't help with their civilian guy, a white guy who swore uh, up and down that he knew the area like the back of his hand, got lost continuously along the way, prolonging the entire march. Which is just lovely. I mean, sh- that's fantastic. Shout out to that guy for bilking the government out of, I assume, as a decent sized paycheck. Now I'm going to start a company called Blackwater. <laughs> I'm going to go join the Dakota National Guard. Um, 
Soldiers of the Seventh were ordered to surround the town, which was made impossible because it had mountains on two sides of it. Who would have thought? Uh, which Via's men, unlike the guy they hired, really did know like the back of their hand and used the terrain for cover. There was no real unifying force amongst Via's men other than not wanting to stick around and fight. One group took off running, engaged in a running horseback gun battle like some baller-ass shit out of a cowboy movie with the Americans as they went, though. <laughs> yeah, like, I am not a great marksman. However, I can assure you I'd be a terrible marksman on horseback. And it really seems like most of these guys were, too. Because this is not the first running gun battle, or this is not going to be the last running gun battle on horseback we talk about in this episode. And the casualties are very, very low. It's because nobody could aim. <laughs> Like, you're just, like, bouncing around the back of a wild animal, firing a rifle wildly over its head. Nobody's hitting fucking Passive anything. they're missing. <laughs> That's right. Now, another group of, of Villa's men within Guerrero simply walked out of the town. Now, the, their whole master plan was, we'll pretend to be the Mexican National Army. I bet these fucking gringos are too stupid to tell the difference. They were right. They just walked out and pretended to be Carranza's soldiers, who, remember supposedly technically allies of the u.s government and they well, you want you that's you, we got bamboozled sir ah yeah nevertheless we will try uh, you want to guess how exactly they tricked the americans they just walked out and said oh we killed them no, all they sir. simply picked up a mexican flag and walked out with it oh my god and, and the americans like that checks out good enough come on by boys now, in the running battle, one of Via's close friends was killed, and people believe they actually may have wounded Via, but that was just a rumor. There's actually no evidence that Via was even in Guerrero at the time. Uh, and like, even though the, the U.S. considers this the most successful battle of the entire expedition, there's no evidence that Via was actually there at all. And actually, the reason why that the, the, the fleeing soldiers got away is because the, the cavalry troopers' horses were so tired from the march, they couldn't keep up. Otherwise, they would have definitely seen that Via wasn't there. Uh, but right. yeah, it, like I said, the Savannah is considered the most successful battle of the expedition. So much so that the man in charge of it, Colonel George Dodd, was promoted to brigadier general and became a national hero. I assume the bar is very low back then. Um, I, well, I mean, the bar is low now. Uh, Dodd himself yeah. <laughs> may, must not have been very proud of all of this because he retired that same month, just 23 days later. <laughs> Now, despite this ongoing clusterfuck, Pershing, no uh, nickname given, insisted things were going fine, and morale was just as good as the day the, the expedition began. And then the Battle of Peral happened. On April 13th, a force around 150 cavalry soldiers under the command of Frank Tompkins walked into the town of Peral. The town was thought to be a resting spot, and they had been told along the way by members of the National Army... I assume maybe also Villa's guys just holding a flag <laughs> that they would be greeted by Mexican soldiers when they got there. But when they got to the town, they were not welcomed. Instead, a Mexican general, Ismael Lozano, told Tompkins that him and his men should fuck off or there'd be problems. Thompson, knowing the delicate di diplomacy at play, realized that he and his men should leave before something popped off between him and the possible elements of the National <laughs> Army. <laughs> Uh, the tired soldiers got back on their horses and began to leave the town. While they were about a half mile away, Tompkins heard someone shout from back in the city, Viva Villa, 
And then a force of 500 National Army Cavalry soldiers charged out at them, guns drawn. Oh, boy. Now, Topkins knew that if he stood and fought, his very outnumbered unit would be overwhelmed. So instead, they fought a delaying fighting withdrawal for eight miles on horseback until they got back to the fortified American town of Santa de Cruz de Viegas. I'm sure I... Sorry, guys. <laughs> In the running battle, both sides took very few casualties, but the entire expedition was changed because of it. American forces stuck by the strict rules put in place by Carranza while they were over 500 miles from the border. They were still in Chihuahua State, like the state that they were told by Carranza they had to stay there. And right. there is no evidence that Carranza ordered General Lozano to attack the Americans. But after it happened, he just rolled with it and refused to apologize for the actions of his soldiers, which, you know, fair enough, whatever. Yeah, well, that's, hey, man. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just can't own it. They're going to do what they're going to do, and I'm going to open this beer. <laughs> uh, Good luck to you. <laughs> uh, President Carranza, uh, your general attacked us. Yeah, so what? I thought. I th- hey, why don't you tell him to suck a dick if he ate someone? <laughs> I thought you said you wouldn't. Yeah, I did. And then it happened anyway. Yeah. Uh huh. You going somewhere with this? <laughs> See, my secret is I can't order my generals not to attack you because I don't control them, sir. Um, <laughs> what was really happening was the American presence in the country had temporarily ended the war between Villa and Carranza. And many soldiers were simply joining Villa to get a crack at the U.S. as they went by. Like, so oh, it's crazy how, how that would happen. And there, there's even like parts of like Lozano could have joined Villa or also like the, the, the so-called National Army soldiers were like, oh, we're Villa for now. And then like, oh, we're at the National Army when the Americans leave. Like, they didn't care. They didn't give a shit about Villa. Like, it was, it was, the, right. it was the goddamn principle of the matter, right? Right. Carranza was either unwilling or unable to stop them from doing it. And many of his generals were more than willing to play sides. And I'm sure on Carranza's side, it was both. It doesn't have to be one or the other. He was both unwilling and unable. As, I mean, at any point, if he pissed off his generals who wanted to fight the Americans, I mean, they just turned on him. He knows how he came to power. Like, right. Everybody already did this once. I shouldn't make them not hate me. Um <laughs> Which is kind of like ironic as the concept of fighting for Via was more than an idea at this point. Um, like, because remember, Via and his forces were rendered militarily useless, right? Uh, there, right. There's, there's no Via army at this point. Like, the concept of like fighting for Pancho Via or Viva Via is more of a vibe. It just means fuck yeah. the Americans, which I, you know, Fine. Fair. Cool. We deserve it. After running from the U.S., it caused Villa's men to desert him, and the Battle of Guerrero smashed when their last large unit still in the field. Villa really wasn't a threat to anyone at this point. He was just managing to escape the Americans, almost certainly with the help of the Carranza administration and the Mexican military at several different layers uh, and, and levels. But like, the main thing that he was doing was just not getting caught, which right. sure, you know, whatever. George Washington was brilliant at retreating. And he's the father of the exactly. country. So. You don't actually have to win battles to win a war. I mean, ask the Taliban. Right. What is even worse 
is that before the Battle of Peral, it was almost certain the expedition was going to wrap up. The military in the U.S. government was coming to the conclusion that it actually looked pretty bad for them to be chasing a single dude throughout Mexico. And uh, only four days before the Battle of Peral, the Secretary of War said that Pershing had accomplished everything he was going to and the soldiers should turn around and come back, which is like sure. taking your ball and going home with the military. Well, like they, they, they were realistic, like we're never going to fucking capture this guy. Right. But after Peral, Pershing was fucking pissed. He demanded he'd be allowed to shift the expedition from what it was into an actual invasion of Mexico at large, taking the entire state and entire capital uh, of that state in Chihuahua. This is nuts. And thankfully, this was refused. So you're probably wondering what made Mexico and the U.S. back down from almost certain all-out war at this point. Because at this point, the same excuse can't be used as Veracruz, right? Like, you're already committed. Well, neither side really could wage a full-on war if they wanted to. Um, the U.S. figured if they were if they wanted to start the second American uh, Mexican American War for real, they would need up to another hundred thousand troops. Remember, they already Hopefully have ones with arms this time, yeah, and they've already gotten rid of about a quarter of the other guys that wanted to sign up. They'd probably have to start a draft, um, right? Which they they just didn't have another hundred thousand soldiers. Remember, they already have one hundred and forty thousand at the border, and even if they did start a draft. They did not have the means to arm, equip, or train these guys. Um, But Wilson also couldn't order a withdrawal. It would make his administration look weak, and it was during, what else, an election cycle. Yeah. Of course. Why'd I fucking ask? (laughs) Of course, this is all very stupid, but uh, the votes are... uh, Yes, of course. So instead, the U.S. advance into Mexico simply stopped, and instead they pulled back closer to the border make and made like this kind of weird sort of not sort of is occupation force without any real mission or just sort of hung out or yeah i mean some missions were still carried out like there was raids uh like for one instance uh, a young lieutenant you may have heard of george Patton, carried out the first motorized assault yes i've heard of yes uh noted bastard lieutenant future general guys a real asshole as it turned out uh, critical support to the uh, scooter that killed him. Now, um, maybe it was a car accident. I don't remember. I think it was a motorcycle or a scooter. But um, anyway, he carried out the first motorized assault in U.S. military history, which I only bring this up because it amounted to being a drive-by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't some, you lose some. So this uh, it was a, a possible via strong point, and he was sitting inside of a Dodge touring car during a mission. And uh, it started as a quest to go buy corn and just happened to let off with a gat. Yeah. Like he ended up getting in a gunfight with a revolver out the door of his fucking touring car, which gave them the shug night. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, He he also ran them over and tangled them over a fucking balcony over the ice ice baby. Um, Noted CEO of death row records. George S. Patton. (laughs) I I hope that's a Photoshop that someone makes that absolutely nobody's going to understand outside the listeners of the show. Um, And honestly, fuck Patton. Obviously, we don't like him. But that also is the most Patton thing I've ever heard. Other than him. Yeah, that's pretty far up there. Other than him smacking soldiers around for having PTSD. Like, 
I'm going to go out and get corn. Oh, surprise drive-by occurs. Also making his dream. <laughs> Lil Patton. Um, Lil Pat. <laughs> but in general, for the most part, soldiers in this occupation didn't really do anything. They had nothing to do. Just vibes, bro. Just vibes, bro. And in like, there's nowhere to go. Um, so like, soldiers sat around gambling and drinking away their paychecks because they had nowhere else to spend it. Like good for them at this point, casualties and the expedition came mostly from accidents and it's probably from being drunk and fighting each other over poker and shit. Mm-hmm. Now there was one main threat to soldiers and that is the specter of wandering off, off uh, the, the base to find a hooker and catching the clap. Yeah. Now you think I might to this day, you know, you, uh, some people are probably thinking we're joking here, but according to general Pershing, this was in fact true. So, um, rather than telling you what the system is that he instituted, I'm simply going to read off directly from the national guard archives here. And I'm going to let you put a title on it. Okay. And, uh, it, it gets dark. Now, again, this is directly from the National Guard archive. I did not editorialize anything here in case anybody thought I was trying to like make things sound worse. But, quote, another feature of the camp at Colonia Dublon were the numerous Mexican prostitutes who followed the troops. To prevent men from leaving camp, Pershing had the prostitutes rounded up and placed under guard in a specially graded barbed wire stockade. Soldiers wishing to visit the stockade were required to show the guard on duty they had the necessary fee that was regulated by the provost marshal. After completing business with one of the visiting ladies, a soldier is required to take a prophylactic provided by the army. The result was a strict sanitary measure that was one of the lowest venereal disease rates an army had ever known. Sex slaves. They had sex slaves. Yeah, that's what that is. And Congratulations, everybody. Yeah. Uh, and in case you're wondering, the provost marshal is in charge of the military police. Um, so this was a, uh, a, a rape stockade guarded by cops. Uh-huh. I, I hate this. Place. And if anybody says that, well, it's I, different. They're paying him. No, Fuck you <laughs> fuck you. Why were they in barbed wire? Why were they rounded up? <laughs> like, that's yeah, what the, this yeah, is. The sex slaves run off. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to break into your house and steal your TV and leave you a crisp 20 on the counter. Are we good? I think not. That's so fucked up. So, um, U.S. Army uh, has some explaining to do on their Mexican sex slaves. Gotta go ahead and assume they're just, uh, who gives a shit? Also, honestly, I'm not shocked that this happened. Oh, you, you've listened to this show enough before you became a host on it. I've been doing this 160 fucking episodes at this point. This part doesn't shock me. What does shock me is that this was like touted as a good measure on the National Guard's website. Like this is one of those things that you just bury. <laughs> like that doesn't even shock me. Just the dumbest people doing the dumbest shit. Is it- like I I should be shocked, but like I'm not. I'm just like yeah, that seems like something they'd be like yeah, like we we did it. Guys. If I was the if I was the historian for the Army National Guard, like guys, we can take that part out. We can put this. Like, down. Nobody's making us flex just, on this. Yeah. We could say regrettably, and then the same paragraph. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you don't have to be like this. Yeah. 
that's that's like the like the uh, I don't know the U.S. Army Air Corps bragging about the or the the British Air Corps, the Royal Air Force, whatever, bragging about the density of bombs on Dresden. <laughs> like you don't have to do that. Uh, anyway, U.S. forces uh, stationed at Colonia Dublin were meant to be something of a threat, showing Mexico what would happen if they didn't take their mission of catching Villa seriously. Remember, this is. There they they went back to the um, okay the government says they can capture Via the government's going right. to do it uh, which of course Carranza did not care he didn't give a shit at this point he knew well the army is not coming back like they pulled back for a reason we literally shot at them and they they sh- they shrunk at the challenge so like they're not even if we fuck around they're not going to come at us for for not catching Via right right. Uh, skirmishes continued, and soldiers on both sides, and civilians for that matter, kept dying while achieving absolutely nothing. Uh, which yeah. I, I understand. I, I, I just explained all of military history in that sentence, but, you know. Yep. People die for no fucking reason. It happens a lot. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yep. After numerous, mostly pointless negotiations between the Mexican and American governments... The U.S. finally withdrew on January of 1917. Both Pershing and Wilson publicly called the expedition a success. Uh, well, whatever you want, I in guess. In case you're keeping track, they did not achieve its one singular goal, which is catching Pancho Villa. Uh, neither did Carranza, for that matter. Uh, Pershing blamed Wilson for having too many restrictions on military operations. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Oh, God. I assume that that restriction is the president didn't let me just do whatever I wanted. I wanted to do war crimes. <laughs> I want a war. You have a war at home. Um, oh, yeah, war at home sucks, mom. <laughs> Can we get Applebee's? I mean, honestly, the expedition of Mexico is truly the Applebee's of American wars. I don't know how I'm going to rank the rest of them in in comparison to fast, fast casual restaurants, but I'll, I'll work on that for the future. We'll, we'll figure it out. Now, I like it, it, what's kind of incredible is like in his private letters, um, Pershing did not blame Wilson. He blamed. Uh, he said that quote, "We returned home like a whipped cur with its tails between its legs." So like yeah, he got beat. Um, but it didn't matter. Pershing no nickname given, became a national figure. Frunston died of a heart attack as soon as the expedition was over. And that meant that Pershing would... What a bitch! Pershing pretty much rode clout to become the the AEF commander in World War One. Like, there were significantly more uh, accomplished generals in the U.S. military at the time, but everybody knew who Pershing was. So, like, eh, you got it, sir. <laughs> like, that was it. <laughs> And only a few months later, uh, the American Expeditionary Force was in France. Um, I believe it was like April or June, the same year. It was only a couple months later. And thankfully, nothing bad ever happened in the U.S.-Mexico border ever again. Nope. 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 And 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 the episode. And the episode for the LS. <laughs> <laughs> um, so h- how do you feel about the, uh, the, our, our, the second Mexican-American war? Should be called that, but isn't. Of course, we just like did like I love the the story of the dudes just like hanging out and gambling, just vibes, just vibes. I mean, like honestly, um, 
the the army fucking up and the ending with soldiers not entirely sure why they're somewhere while also getting drunk and gambling pretty much covers my entire career. I don't know. Um, It was interesting to me to see just how backwards the National Guard system was. Right. And then, honestly, it it would have been very interesting to see how badly World War I would have gone if we had not done this first. Right. Like, this is almost like a dry run for a lot of it. And like, right. Like a warm up. Yeah. Like a a tune up, if you will. Got to have a warm up neighboring war before you go overseas and do war. That's right. Um, and like the net to like the National Guard historian like admits that pretty much like, yeah, yeah, we learned, uh, like how to mobilize people correctly and also not let a cousin with no knees enlist in the National Guard or whatever. Um, so Liam. We do a segment on this yeah, show bro. called Questions from the Legion. <clears throat> if you would like to ask us a question from Legion, donate to the show. Find me on Discord. Slide into my DMs on Twitter or Patreon, preferably Patreon, and ask me a question that is not important and could be saved for a Q&A episode whenever we do one of those again. And this one is topical, I, I believe. Um, obviously, both of us are sports fans. Um, what is making you mad about sports at this moment? Uh, Jalen Hurts isn't very good. Ben Simmons exists. Uh, the, the fucking Stanley Cup final is lightning abs. Uh, the Phillies suck ass. But, uh, I, uh, Kemba Walker broke my heart. Uh, shit. Uh, what did Kemba Walker do? He just got hurt like last year and then they had to trade him. And it was just a bummer because he's my favorite player. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, Ben Simmons being on a max contract and just refusing to shoot the fucking basketball is pretty far up there at the moment. I saw a clip of him like literally sitting at a whole play and not like doing anything. And it was pretty incredible. He just does that. <laughs> he just does that now. He like he's so afraid to like take criticism or miss a free throw that he's just like, I'll, I just won't play that. Solid. I mean, you can't have bad well, the stats fuck you're on a max contract, if you simply like, never play. That's true. But like you're on a fucking max like get out there and miss like you know I I would rather you like visibly like suck and at least start trying than like whatever the fuck this shit is. It's unwatchable. Um, I have to second the Stanley Cup finals gripe mostly and I understand that due to COVID and their refusal to not do sports during a time of pandemic meant they had to change how the playoff format was effectively guaranteeing a Canadian team would go to the Stanley cup finals because that's the only way any of those mismanaged teams are ever going to make it that far as if it's gifted to them. Right. And the worst one made it meaning it's going to be a fucking sweep for the bolts. Um, yeah, I, I know. And I just like there's shit with the salary cap and like all that other dumb bullshit. It's just like, I'm so fucking tired of Steven Stamkos existing. Yeah. And what sucks, I'm and another gripe is just generally Detroit sports in general. Currently, um, obviously the Lightning, Enjoy Jared Goff, bud, the, uh, the, uh, former lightning general manager, Steve Eiserman moved back to Michigan and became general manager of the Red Wings. And the only thing that I, that makes me mad right now is, um, like, Steve Eisenman never would have gone to Tampa Bay if Ken Holland, uh, the old general manager, refused did not refuse to give up his spot. Right, and you know all of like he Steve Eisenman didn't have a ton of draft picks to choose from. 
when he was in Tampa Bay either. He just is good at scouting right. and hiring good scouts and listening to them. That's not that far out of the realm of belief that we, like Detroit, gets a lot of the same players that the Tampa Bay Lightning now have and turn them right. into a fucking dynasty. And instead, we're going to be last place for like the next 10 years. Uh, yep. But that's why I'm mad. Um, also, the Blackhawks covering up sexual assault in the NHL. Hey, yeah. what's new? Yeah. Um, M- NFL and uh, NHL shaking hands on, on that one. But anyway, welcome to the Lions Led by Hockey podcast. Um, a podcast I wish I could make because I loved, I fucking love hockey. Um, but Liam, plug your other show. Uh, well, there's your problem. It's a show about engineering disasters. Listen to it. And uh, Thank you. it's good. And occasionally uh, they allow me to come on it um, to pimp my books. Oh, yeah. We got to have you back on. Uh, also, Thank you, everybody, donating to the show. Donate the $3 level and you get an entire new series uh, called The History of Armenia once a month uh, because I cannot possibly do another once a week show. (laughs) (laughs) Liam, thank you for joining me on this. Your first series of two, your duology, the Liam duology. duology. Um, Thank you for having me. And this is now uh, Liam's Led by Donkeys. Liam's Led by Donkeys. Until next time, everyone. Uh, don't do anything the National Guard did in the last two hours. Try not to invade Mexico. Try not to invade Mexico. Later. <laughs>